I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It is great to be with you today, and uh, a lot going on. It, it almost feels uh, we, we have real people around, uh, socially distanced, of course. Uh, let me speak to the governor's coming up. Uh, Maria's logging in and uh, getting ready for that conversation with Governor Spencer Cox uh, all week this week. And uh, during the day today, we've been talking about this concept of fingerprints and the fingerprinters of the world, those who go around and just make a difference in so many different ways. Uh, you've joined us. You've participated and shared some of the people. I think it is one of the great questions to ask somebody. If you ever want to have a good, deep conversation, just ask somebody whose fingerprints are on your life. Uh, a really interesting questioning to, uh, to think through. And so as Kellyanne, our producer, uh, and I were having that conversation, uh, she's had uh, some tender moments uh, this past week, uh, the passing of someone who clearly had fingerprints on her life. Uh, but I'm really excited. We don't get to do this very often, but we've got Kellyanne Halverson behind the microphone uh, to tell us whose fingerprints are on your life. My grandpa, Jack Halverson, he recently passed away, and he is the man, he's probably the smartest and most jovial and kind man I've ever met in my life. Um, and I, it was really sad to see him go, but he taught me to love to learn. Yeah. And that really got me, has gotten me so far in life. And he's in, as I do work for you, I learn every day as I research for you. And I just, I miss that man. He definitely yeah. left a fingerprint on my life. Yeah. And, uh, it was a, it was one of those sad, but happy endings, yeah. uh, a graduation really, yeah, really. Uh, for grandpa Jack and, uh, and clearly his influence. You've, mm-hmm. you've shared some of the stories about him, his, uh, his work, his life, uh, he loved space and uh, engaged there. Uh, give us just a little sense of that. Uh, sure. So uh, he was born in 1926, and his life spanned from kind of homesteading and mining in Idaho to um, all the way to, to working with uh, the Apollo program. At 16, he went into San Francisco and was trained to do aviation engineering. He was a test pilot. He uh, went to Stanford, and he helped develop guided missile technology and rocket technology, um, and actually Saturn rockets that led to him being at the Apollo 15 launch to see wow. his work. He was at the forefront of computer engineering. He served two missions in Hawaii when he was younger. Uh, this is for the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When he was younger, he actually asked and got permission to be the first missionaries in the Leprosorium oh, wow. uh, Malachi. And then he actually went back in 1999 and debugged the computers at the La- uh, Lehigh Temple and Polynesian Culture Centers from the Y2K oh, wow. bug. Just the coolest guy ever. Always teaching, always smiling. Just uh, amazing. Forever learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, as we've had that conversation, and again, uh, clear fingerprints in so many different ways, 
you, you've put together uh, just a really compelling, uh, really biography on him through through video and sound, and we'll put that on our Facebook page. We'll have a special uh, bonus podcast uh, checking out the life of Jack Halverson. Uh, but I want to share just one little piece of that uh, with our audience live today, uh, and that is that he uh, he really explained in a in a just profoundly poetic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, flight and and what that meant to him. Let's 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 take a listen. One of the most exciting te- things I've ever done was having the opportunity of flying. There's a feeling when you're up there alone, and particularly when you do your first aerobatics all alone, your slow rolls, your hammerheads, your loops, all of the things that you do of that nature, and you're all alone up here, all by yourself, and you look out. You can see the beautiful earth below you, the, the sky's still above you, and it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And uh, I, while well, I've experienced some nice things, I don't think I've experienced anything any more fun than actually the feeling of flying. Yeah. All right. And that's the uh, the voice of Jack Halverson, uh, a, a master fingerprinter uh, <laughs> who's left his fingerprints on uh, Kellyanne Halverson, who's put a lot of fingerprints on this program uh, every single day. Kellyanne, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. All right. Uh, again, uh, just a, a great thing. And we're going to do this as a bonus podcast. You want to listen to this, uh, The Life of Jack Halverson. It is uh, really extraordinary. Someone born in 1926, uh, passed away just last week and uh, made a difference for so many. Uh, and there are so many others out there uh, like Jack Halverson who uh, may not have been on the front pages of the paper, uh, may not have been on headline news, uh, but made a difference in uh, in hearts and lives and, and left fingerprints. And again, that's something we just want to always be watching out for uh, are the, the fingerprinters of the world. They they make such a such a difference for us. And, and when we really slow down and recognize those, uh, that's a good day. It's a really good day. Find the fingerprinters out there. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on KSL News Radio's Inside Sources today. And as always, as you go out into the world, see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. Welcome back to Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. You might notice. I'm not Boyd. Um, I'm actually producer Kellyanne, and Boyd was gracious enough and wonderful enough to let me talk a bit about my recently passed grandfather on the radio today. And for the podcast, we are actually going a little bit deeper into the life of my grandpa and to share a little bit more about his inspirational story, how he's left a fingerprint in my life and those around him. I actually had a wonderful opportunity a few years before he passed to create a documentary film on my grandfather. So I wanted to share just a little bit of the interviews I did with him so we can learn about him in his own voice. I will forever be grateful to Grandpa Jack for instilling in me this deep love of learning uh, with great patience and energy. He taught me everything from negative numbers to loving old cultures, skiing, and, and more. He really shaped the forever learner mindset that I have today and really got me to where I am today because of that foundation. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to read a bit of his obituary here to let you know who he was. Jack Leon Halverson passed away March 9, 2021 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was born to Joseph L. Halverson and Edna Mary Foster on July 27, 1926 in Salt Lake City. 
He attended South High School and the University of Utah, where he completed an electrical engineering degree. He received a master's degree from Stanford University with a control system emphasis. On March 5, 1951, Jack married Marjean Polson Halverson in the Salt Lake City Temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Jack will always be remembered for his kindness, caring, infectious smile, and bear hugs. And I want to add his laughter. He was a natural leader and was excited to teach and share his many interests with others. He was a dedicated youth mentor and was involved for many years as a leader in the Boy Scouts. He was always interested in learning about the world around him and was constantly and aggressively seeking knowledge throughout his entire life. Jack was an avid snow and water skier, windsurfer, mountain biker, and mountaineer. He loved being in the wild and enjoying the beauty of God's creations. He was a loving and supportive husband, father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. And I just want to add right here, he was such a charming man. He actually talked his way and uh, and six of us family members into a free evening at Disneyland um, <laughs> where they treated him like a king and gave him special seating and popcorn and things like that. So he he was just charming as well. At the tender age of 16, Jack moved to San Francisco to be trained as an aircraft mechanic, where he worked on large cargo and passenger seaplanes. This led to his service in the Navy, where he continued to maintain and repair large amphibious aircrafts. He later joined the U.S. Army Air Corps, which became the U.S. Air Force. There he began his training and study of guided missile systems. Jack was a gifted and accomplished engineer. He was heavily involved in the early stages of development of guided missiles technology which enabled later space travel and exploration. At Montec, Electro Controls, and culminating at Evans & Sutherland's Computer Corporation, his contributions were a driving force in creating innovative and groundbreaking advances in his field. Jack was active in the church throughout his life and served diligently in many church callings. He served his first mission in Hawaii as a young man, where he obtained permission for he and his companion to become the first missionaries to serve at the Leprosorium Kalopapa on Molokai. He later returned to the island to serve a 12-month mission with his wife in the Hawaii-Honolulu mission, where he served in an information technology department at the Polynesian Culture Center and the Lai Temple. He and Marjean also served as workers in the Salt Lake Temple for years, and he loved and served the Lord right up to the very end of his life. He is survived by his sons and many of his extended family. He will be missed, but the fingerprints he left on other people's lives will stay on generations of hearts. When I created the documentary for school, it was a short documentary of only about five minutes. But I had the opportunity to sit with him and actually record at greater length uh, and learning about his life. So what I'd like to do now is insert his side of that full interview. And I just want you to notice his contagious laughter, his awesome story about working with uh, Werner von Braun. You'll see throughout his love of learning and actually teaching and giving people a chance to learn and grow on their own. And his amazing story when he actually had to do an emergency landing. Thank you so much for listening to this and for learning a bit about him. If you want to learn more about him, I've just been collecting so many materials and putting together different videos and slideshows for family. Uh, you can find that at kahalvo.com. And that's k-a-h-a-l-v-o.com. And thank you again for listening and for Boyd for letting me use this time uh, to share about my grandfather. And now let's hear about him through his own words. Well, my name is Jack Halverson, and I'm fortunate enough to live in the wonderful state of Utah. 
and have all the many things that are available to us here. I've had a, had an opportunity in my life to do a lot of really fun things. Everyone isn't that lucky, and I really appreciate having that. I happen to be born and be here during the period when we were going through World War II and then later on the Korean crisis and had the opportunity of serving my country in both of those. Uh, had the opportunity of uh, getting part of my education in Utah. I uh, went to elementary school here, elementary schools. In fact, I actually went to 14 different elementary schools and then eventually ended up uh, graduating from South High School and I graduated in June of 1943. At that particular time, of course, the World War II was at its going at its height. And so uh, during the, my senior year at South, I had the opportunity of uh, attending a special Defense Department school in um, aircraft and engine technology during for a half a day of each day while I was in a senior at that time. Of course, we were all very much interested in the possibility of going and helping out for the war. I'm sure we didn't understand all of the details of what was going to happen, but um, it, uh, we wanted to attend schools such as this so that we could be helpful to our country. The end of our year at South, we actually ended up being invited to be inducted into the Naval Air Transport Service, part of our class. Actually, it was the top 5% of our class that were inducted directly into the military. So I, I actually graduated from high school on June the 3rd of that year. And on June 13th, I was at the Naval Base at Treasure Island, San Francisco, actually working on military aircraft. So that was uh, pretty exciting for us, and there were lots of things that we had to learn there. And um, the program was a program for training flight engineers, and the first part of that training period we had to spend on doing the actual maintenance and servicing of military aircraft flying both to the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Actually, um, my interest in aviation came through attending this Defense Department school. And when I was 11 years old, I became very much interested in electrical engineering and um, actually decided that that's what I wanted to be in my life, <clears throat> which was a great advantage to me. But as soon as I went through the school, I got very much interested in, um, in the aer aeronautical engineering. And when I uh, was released from the service, I actually came back to the University of Utah and enrolled in the aeronautical engineering program. So my interest came about as a result of the schooling. And uh, I was only in school uh, part of a quarter at that time. And because of a, a, an accident of my father, I left school to help the family out. Little did I realize that uh, it would be a long time before I got back. 
as a result of the experience in the aircraft business, I ended up uh, being employed for field service engineering and maintenance by a company called Wheeler Crushaw, which was Caterpillar Tractor Company, and uh, remained there until September of 1950 when I was called back, <clears throat> called into the service for the Korean crisis. This time I ended up, instead of being in the Navy, ended up being in the Army Reserve at that point. And so I spent the next two years in the Army. One of the most interesting things of, of this experience, of course, is that um, the training was um, very, very directed and focused. And was we were actually trying to teach the Army as well as the United States government on what you could do with guided missiles. And, and I spent a wonderful time first in the schools and then later doing research and development and, uh, at the White Sands Missile Range and at Fort Bliss, Texas. Those experiences uh, shifted me back into the direction of electronics again. Of course, the, the training in the Naval Air Transport Service was very interesting at that particular time. The first problem was that the Navy didn't have sufficient runways, especially in the Pacific Ocean, to land land-based airplanes. So the Navy actually bought all of Pan American Airways airplanes and then was hired back by the Navy to operate them. And the reason for that is that all we needed for to land in the Pacific any place was a fairly quiet bay and a control tower because the water's all we needed for the runway. And so the the uh, learning the various things that we had to 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 fly the aircraft and the Naval Air Transport Service was responsible at that time for transporting high priority personnel including uh including President Roosevelt at one particular time and so the job for us was to figure out the best possible ways to have the aircraft come in be completely serviced and turned around at that particular time we were flying a Boeing B314 Clipper which was the largest aircraft ever built at that particular time it was very exciting on one day we did the amazing thing we had 3 B314s come in completely serviced them unloaded them completely serviced them uh reloaded them again and sent them out all in a 24 hour period which was pretty neat <laughs> One of the most exciting parts of that program for me was uh, when the flight crew members, in this particular case, I was training to be a flight engineer. The training was to have, make sure that all of the flight crew was able to pilot an aircraft. And so I was went through a primary training stage at that particular time, actually out of Palo Alto Airport in California. And um, I was flying a primary trainer called Orion PT-22. 
and uh, the PT-22 aircraft was uh, a low wing, and it was a, an excellent airplane for flying aerobatics. And the aerobatics phase uh, location for that flight was above the Stanford University uh, uh, research area up in the hills behind it. One of the most exciting times in my life and one of the scariest times was uh, while I was flying the PT-22 out of Palo Alto Airport. When I was about 50 feet off the runway on a takeoff on one of the training days, I had the carburetor ice up on our airplane and the engine stopped, which meant I had no alternative but to come back down again. Uh, I knew that I couldn't land in the field next in the direction that I was going because of the swamps on the edge of, the Sa of San Francisco Bay. So I had to get to the field beyond that. I knew it was a plowed field, and I knew that you could possibly land. <laughs> All right. And uh, as I was approaching the field, I could see that they were installing a new fence. And the fence was in, and the poles were up, but the fence hadn't been, the barbed wire hadn't been strung yet. But I had hoped that I would have room to get the wings between the aircraft and not tear a wing off. And uh, had to make a decision whether to try for to go through and clear or go a little ways off center and take one part of the wings off on the other side. Fortunately, I was could clear. I landed the aircraft all right and got out of the aircraft. And as I was leaving the aircraft, an airplane taxied over behind into where I was. I walked about uh, 50 feet from the air, aircraft, and my legs gave way on me. I couldn't stand up. I wasn't physically injured, but it, emotionally. So I just sat down on my parachute there, and turned out that it was my flight instructor with another student behind me. And, and the thing that I didn't tell you is that uh, just after you got through the fence, there was a big dike with, with a canal in it, and the dike was above ground, and it stood about eight feet high. And, um, of course, uh, I rolled as close to that as I could, put on the brakes, and then rotated, and the wing tipped up. Well, to shorten the story, my instructor walked up and said, asked me how I was, and I said, well, I'm okay, but I'm, my legs won't hold me up right now. He said, well, I wasn't worried. I knew that dike would stop you on the other side. So that wasn't very encouraging. <laughs> Probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done was having the opportunity of flying. There's a feeling when you're up there alone, and particularly when you do your first aerobatics all alone, your slow rolls, your hammerheads, your loops, all of the things that you do of that nature, and you're all alone up here all by yourself, and you look out, you can see the beautiful earth below you, the, the sky's still above you, and it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And uh, I, while I've experienced some nice things, I don't think I've experienced anything any more fun than actually the feeling of flying. There are <clears throat> quite a few awards in college and got newspaper articles and all those things, but I, I don't know how 
would bring those in. Uh, I was the national delegate for Tau Beta Pi, which is, uh, which is the world's broadest uh, engineering fraternity. Of course, it uh, turns out that I ended up through the uh, naval air transport business with um, five of my very fr close friends. We, uh, we all lived off of the base, lived on in San Francisco, and uh, our spiritual group there was the Sunset Ward in San Francisco. And an interesting sidelight here is that uh, uh, our MN, when we used to have MN and Gleaners in church, uh, our MN and Gleaner leaders were Ted Cannon and his wife, and they were stationed in San Francisco, but they went to Sunset Ward. So they were kind of our mom and dad in a way. Well, very young, though. They were just a little bit older than we were. But, uh, but the interesting thing about that is that uh, they were always there for us, questions to ask or anything we needed. But the interesting thing is that uh, when Rick went on his mission, he's partway through his mission, Ted and Art of Cannon became his mission president. <laughs> That's kind of neat. <laughs> Part of our job in the Army, as I mentioned, guided missiles were brand new. The only guided missiles we had when, we, when I first got in there was two missiles that were copied after the Germans, the, the V-1 and the V-2 missiles of Germany. We also brought back uh, from Germany, the Russians and the Americans tried to get as many of the rocket scientists as they could possibly get. And we were fortunate enough to end up with Werner von Braun and his and his whole team. Um, when we moved into the first guided missile group, the German scientists moved out of our, the same buildings because they were moving to Redstone Arsenal. They just built Redstone Arsenal, a brand new facility. And, and so we moved in to their, their quarters. Okay, now the, the Fort Bliss is here. White Sands Missile Range is about 20 miles across a dirt road. It's longer if you go paved road. And and Werner was responsible for both of those areas while I was there. It was joint. Uh, he was not a military personnel, so there was always a military person too. He already had built, got built, the test stand for an engine that was 10 times jet engine that was a rocket engine that was ten times, at least ten times, the size of anything we were firing at that particular time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he already had in mind that uh, we were going to, first of all, put up satellites, then we are going to go to the moon. And uh, that, uh, that test stand would, would uh, test a 500,000-pound engine. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the, the, the rockets that, that went to the moon, where we had seven and a half million pounds. So, but that's in four engines. So the point I'm trying to make is that he, he had this vision then, and 
and had was developing it. But the the test stand, even the 500,000 pound, half a million pound engine, wasn't a uh, test stand, wasn't going to test an engine for the moon. That's why Redstone Arsenal was built, to build these these rocket engines. Um, okay, so so what happened then is that uh, the the missiles that we had at that particular time, these others hadn't been built yet at all, but we had the Army Loon One and the and the uh, V two rocket, and they were just very primitive in comparison to to the other rockets that were being being made. So, what is this all? <laughs> Why am I saying all this? The problem was we were trying to get funding so that we could develop more guided missiles. That was we needed them. We needed them for really bad for the military. And uh, our job was to try to train Congress and the House of Representatives and the government what guided missiles could do. So we had a whole display facility set up for essentially training people. It wasn't only it wasn't only civilians. It was military too. Okay, now. Um, what happened is, uh, if uh, you had, if you read up on history of of Europe and the war in Europe, you'll find out there was a general, Mark Clark, who was um, the the sole commander of the military forces in uh, in Europe. Okay, he came to first. He came through initially at our own our own. Uh, facility for the and then he came back for training and stayed in the class for I guess about a month okay. and I had the opportunity of being one of the instructors for that particular time and he wrote a very nice letter that's <laughs> probably probably got it still but um, but that that was a, that was really a real honor for me one of the most interesting and one of the best things that happened to me was uh, in the army was uh, at the time that um, Marjean and I was prepared to get married and uh, of course she was in Salt Lake and I was in El Paso, Texas I was in the middle of schooling and the rule was that unless it was a death in the family they wouldn't allow you to miss any schooling but I Decided that I was going to go ask uh, Major Eagersheimer if uh, if he would let me go home to get married in Salt Lake Temple. What we really planned on doing was um, Marjean and her parents were going to drive to Mesa, Arizona. I was going to drive over from El Paso to Mesa. We were going to get married in the Mesa Temple, and then her parents come home, and then Marjean was going on with me to the base. That was the initial plan. But now all of a sudden it changes if I could get permission to come to Salt Lake. So I asked him, and uh, he said, when I went in for the interview, he says, now, first of all, Halverson, you notice, you know that uh, we don't allow anybody to be missed the schooling once they're in the school program except for a death in the family. And he said, but let me tell you something. He says, a few years ago, my wife and I were in Salt Lake City. 
and we were visiting, and we decided to go visit Temple Square. And he said, we walked inside the, the gates of Temple Square, and this guide came and picked us up and gave us a wonderful tour of Temple Square. But he wouldn't even stop with that. He showed us several other places that we needed to go visit while we were there. And we had a wonderful time there. He says, I'm going to give you five days to go home and get married. He says, the problem is you're going to have to be back at the top of the class in in a, in two weeks after you get back here. And we came home. Marjean arranged for the for uh, reception. And then we were married in the Salt Lake Temple and went back to El Paso. Well, first of all, I guess uh, the first phase, I went in the Naval Air Transport Service when I was 16 years old and had three years by the time I was 19. Then I served a mission for the LDS Church in Hawaii. So following that experience, the experience that I had in the service and the responsibilities at the Naval Air Transport Service, I think helped give me a lot of confidence to there were things that I wanted to do and could do and believe that I could do that. So that's the first step. But the military experience in the first guided missile group actually opened up the electronics part of my life again, and I became a guided missile guidance specialist. And then that helped me. First of all, the schooling helped me because there were certain amount of credit hours that I got in the military that applied to my degree at the University of Utah. So uh, I received a, a undergraduate degree of in electrical, electrical and electronic engineering. Then when I graduated, I wanted to continue on with my education to get a master's degree. And uh, fortunately, it turns out that the military experience that, that I had in guided missiles turned out to be one of the most helpful things, both in my schooling, but also gave me the opportunity to receive advanced study fellowship for, first of all, UCLA and then for Stanford University, which I would never have been able to afford to do because uh, by the time I graduated, we already had two children and uh, Marjean was so helpful to me in this because you think of it, she raised our family for six years while I was going to school. Mm. Kelly, you know one of the things that... Uh, well, let's, let's do it again, but you can't say Kelly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> one of the things that you may have acquired from hearing me talk before is the fact that... Uh, Without mathematics and the sciences, we would not have been able to do the things that we have in our life. We wrote mathematical models of the missiles and flew them on a computer a thousand times, probably, or more, before we ever launched. And so, you know, I've been a real supporter of mathematics for the, the things that it offers. A while back, somebody asked me how how much math I took in college, and uh, I was thinking about uh, after I finished the second course in calculus, I thought I'll never do that again. But I, by the time I graduated, I had gone 14, 13 quarters of mathematics 
and uh, love that tool. So I always encourage that. I I think one of the greatest things that I've learned is that um, when you're trying to do a difficult job, many of the jobs that we do, we don't know how to do them. As some we we proposed a way and made a uh, made a proposal and received the award, but we didn't really know how to do it. We were going to have to figure out how to do that after we got the contract. And I learned that um, if I could hire the best people that I could possibly get and then provide as many of the resources that they need and listen to what they had to say and have them work together, then you've got a real winning team. And I felt that that was really an important thing to me in my life, and especially 25 years at Evans and Sutherland Computer Corporation. Of course, you know my favorite is windsurfing. (laughs) But I don't think we need to bring that in here. (laughs) Well, I brought it in anyway because that was just too much of an adorable moment. Um, Thank you for listening to this, and I'm going to let Boyd close us out. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor of the Deseret News. Thanks for joining us on KSL Inside Sources today. And as always, as you go out into the world today, see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.